Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Welcome to Warm Now, Queen. A candid and adult take on queer life quandaries at a certain age. So please listen at your own discretion. Presented by Bernie and Tommy, the views here are purely those of the content providers and in no way reflect those of any service you may hear this program on. Now, please let your ears be upstanding for the <coughs> old queens. Hello, Tommy. How are you, Bernie? I'm I'm good. I feel a little bit rushed, but um, and a little bit sweaty. I think it's the heat that's getting to me. Take, take a deep breath, and it, everything's going to be fine. <laughs> I'm sure it will be. <laughs> well, it's certainly going to be fine this episode because um, we've got a, a fantastic guest. Um, I know. Um, Neil Bartlett is coming to join us neil bartlett is uh mbe i know we're gonna we better be on our best behavior i think <laughs> <laughs> it's um, almost so like royalty well yeah like one degree of separation yeah exactly so you know from one queen to a couple of other queens yeah <laughs> um and he's also a playwright uh novelist theatre director, performer, um, was an artistic director of the Hammersmith Lyric. Um, yeah, so. Yeah, and I started reading his book, The Disappearance Boy, as well. Oh, yeah. Uh, I'm, I haven't finished it, but, I mean, we, yeah. can, we can talk about that. He's got a very interesting narrative, a way of kind of writing a narrative, which I quite like the to talk to him about. The stories just really unravel in a really unexpected way. Yeah, yeah, it's really interesting. It's really interesting the way that he writes. Have we got uh, what that really old queen? Yes, so we're doing um, an actor who passed away sadly last year, um, Tommy Baptiste, who I was lucky enough to meet him just a month before he died. So I'm going to be talking a little bit about him. Oh, amazing. That's great. And we've got a uh, fan favourite, Queens of Agony later and um, Kink My Bluff, which we're going to do on Instagram Live again. So should we do that now? And I'll do the old yeah. switcheroo. Sure. And um, we'll see who's there to watch us. 
<laughs> right. Switching over. Hi, Bernie. Hi, Tommy. Can you see me? I can see you, yeah. Hello, China Blue. Thanks for joining oh us. <laughs> We've got, we have an audience of one. <laughs> I've got... Or have you got more? I've got two on my end. Oh, have you? Yeah, but that's yeah. the other one's me. <laughs> so, are we um, ready to play uh, Kink My Bluff? Oh, what's that wreath behind you? It's a sort of Easter wreath. Oh, it's an Easter... Has but, it got, I haven't taken down. Is it, has it got chocolate <laughs> eggs on it? No, they're not chocolate, they're polystyrene. Oh, <laughs> well, yeah, I don't think I want to eat those. If they really were chocolate, I d- it's, <laughs> it's yeah. Well, I think it's it's yeah. It's all right. Okay, so we just let's go for kink my bluff anyway, shall we? Let's yeah. play it. Right. So, how many uh, kinky bluffs have you got for me? I've got two. Two. Okay. They're uh, more like more like gay slang. Okay, but that's fine. You know, as long as they're words. Yeah. I, 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 yeah. We didn't put any rules down for this. They don't have to be in the Oxford English Dictionary or anything. So, um, I multitask and put some hand cream on at the same time. Okay, you you are such a multitasker. It's unbelievable. With Madam Glamour. This week's episode is sponsored by Madam Glamour. Please send us a ton of hand cream. Um, right. H- hello, Mum. Run, monkey, run. Shall I start? Okay. Okay. My word is nappy form. Nappy form. Like body form. A bit like body form, but it's called nappy form. N-A-P-I-F-O-R-M. Is it a term used for the costume used in the kink of baby play? So when people dress up as babies, their costume is called nappy form, like uniform. Okay. Or is it the term for something which is shaped like a turnip? Kink or bluff? It's a kink. It's a kink. It's the uniform, nappy form. You think it's the uniform? Sorry. It's actually something which is shaped like a turnip, which you might use, uh, in, a ki- you might use in a kink anyway, right? In the medieval times, for sure. Yeah. I mean, you know, they were using all sorts of things for um, um, dildo-type things, right? <laughs> Connecting that up with a vegetable theme. Right. Um, my word is a tossed salad. A tossed salad. Okay. So is tossed salad gay slang for analingus and rimming? <laughs> yes. Or is it gay slang for a gay party when old and young gays come together? Ooh. So the first one is uh, analingus and rimming. Toss salad mm. or old and young partying together. I'm going to go for old and young partying together. Incorrect. Oh. 
God damn it. Okay. Well, neither of us are doing very well this week, right? No. <laughs> so, Qui Gong or Qui Gong. Um, so it's Q I G O N G. Is it the name of a particular implement used to put down the urethra, urethra Franklin, during the mm. kinky exercise of sounding? So is it the name of a particular kind of implement that you would use? Or is it a type of ancient Chinese meditational exercise practiced by monks or wise people? China thinks that we're very serious in our way that we're considering our answers. <laughs> we are, well, you know, it's, it's a competition. <laughs> well, <wouldn't it>? uh, <laughs> I don't think we're serious about anything, are we? <laughs> I think it's a. Um, I think it's the monk thing. You think it's the monk? It is. You're absolutely right. Brilliant. It's. It's not. It's not a kink. It's definitely a bluff. So it was. Yeah, the Chinese meditational exercise. So it's one nil to you. Hmm. What's next? A turtleneck. Is it? A middle-aged catalogue gay man, mm -hmm. or is it an uncircumcised penis? I think it's an uncircumcised penis. Correct. Yes! <laughs> One all. Great. Right, well, this is the decider. Okay, I already two. Okay, so that we've got one all. This is the tiebreaker. Cor okay. Corporolalia. Corporolalia. So it's C-O-P-R-O-L-A-L-I-A. -A. So, is it the act of using obscene words during sex to arouse either or both partners during the act of sex? Sorry, excuse me. During the act of sex. <laughs> <laughs> uh, sex, always gives, sex always gives me wind. <laughs> Um, <laughs> or is it the study of fossilized feces which are called corporolites and are trace fossils and give evidence of an animal's behavior i think it's the study of the ancient feces you think it's the study of the ancient feces <gasps> well i can reveal to you it is a kink. It's the act of using obscene words during sex. Do you use obscene words during sex? Depends what you call obscene. But yeah, probably. I mean, yeah. I mean, I, I quite like the kink of not using obscene words during sex. Like things that you that somebody who's quite vanilla thinks obscene, but they obviously aren't. Can you give me an example? Like... Hit me with your winky. <laughs> <laughs> I did want someone else said what like what sex are you into? What what kind of sex are you into? And I said comedy sex. <laughs> <laughs> what did you mean by comedy sex? <laughs> the idea of like carry on film. <laughs> well, porn films in the seventies used to be a bit like a carry on film, didn't they? <laughs> 
Anyway, um, China Blue of the Queens, thank you so much for staying with us. You're, you're our only listener for this, or viewer. There's three of them, it's so. Oh, is it? Oh, okay. Um, uh, but I hope you enjoyed it, and um, we'll probably be back at some stage with this. And, yeah, we'll see you next time for Kink My Bluff. <laughs> Hello. Hello. <laughs> Hello, back in the other room. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Neil Bartlett coming in imminently. Mm-hmm. Um, so, should we do What That Really Old Queen? Yeah. So, for What That Really Old Queen, I've chosen actually someone that I was lucky enough to have met. Um, so, Tommy Baptiste was born in 1929. Um, he is Guyanese-born actor and opera singer. Um, and he moved to Britain in the 1940s. And that's when I met him. <laughs> uh, no, I'm pulling your leg. Um, so I think, first of all, like he got a job in a factory and then he got us connected with um, someone that I did a, a, a large archival project on um, called Oliver Messel, who was a set designer. And Oliver was very well connected with certain types of people, um, a gay man, and used to throw very glamorous dinner parties and also knew the um, manager of... Uh, John Lewis in, I think it was John Lewis in Oxford Street, and managed to get um, uh, Tommy a job in there, which he would just spend all of his time, he said, in the toilet, um, practicing his music and singing songs and not really doing anything. So he was a, an, a black actor, and I think at that time he did experience quite a lot of racism. Um, well, probably throughout his whole of his uh, his his life, actually. Yeah, he probably um, lived through one of the most difficult times of being a person of colour in Britain. Yeah, um, and it, and he was the co-founder of um, a committee in for equity representing um, black actors. Yes, uh, yeah, he was a founder member of that, wasn't he? And he was the person that he pushed through the kind of idea for campaign or of colourblind casting. Yeah, because he was uh, he was in Pinter plays and things like that, wasn't he? Which traditionally would have been cast as a white actor. Yeah, but he didn't he play like the first black gay character on TV. He played the first black character in Coronation Street. Right. Um, so he, he was, but he was also the first gay black black character. It was in a um, a play called Pal, I think, uh, which was like Play for Today or something on BBC. Okay, um, but yeah, he was yeah he was in Coronation. I think I remember him being in Coronation Street. I mean, it's been years I mean, since I've watched it. Yeah, his sort of back catalogue is extensive. He was also in Till Death Us Do Part. Do you remember that? Yes, I mean, supremely kind of racist. And that was very sitcom. like it was like, it was very it was a very problematic show, really. Well, I think it was trying to break down barriers. Uh, it, in some kind of way but um i mean it's when we look on it today it's just horrific isn't it yeah 
Um, so uh, Tommy is closely associated with Noel Coward. Oh. Um, yeah, rumoured to have been boyfriends. And oh. um, my friend was telling me a story about Tommy and Noel like last year. And I was, so I texted her today um, and I said, can you just remind me of that story that you were telling me about Tommy? And she said, um, well, he was the boyfriend of Noel Coward. Not very bright, but he was old when I met him. And I said, yeah, but didn't you say that he gave very good blowjobs? And I said, <laughs> she, said, she said, I'm unable to report. Noel didn't like buggery, so blowjobs were the way. I presume he had a talent. <laughs> <laughs> um, I mean, you know, there was obviously some mention of blowjobs previously, I would imagine. Yeah. <laughs> Um, so when I met him, which was like a month before he passed, right. I was doing this project about Oliver Messel. So I was going around to different people's houses that remembered Oliver and doing verbatim interviews. And I went around there and he was very, like, he was full of stories and a really interesting character, but very kind of grumpy and like would give me half an hour of his time. So I sat on the edge of his bed I went to Hove to visit him and um, interviewed him there. And then after the half hour, he was like, enough, take him away. <laughs> <laughs> so he was, with his, he was with his goddaughter and she just sort of said, oh, he's, you know, he's very old and very grumpy now. So, you know, right. and, and that, was, that was the end. But, you know, he was just a brilliant storyteller and had such a wide variety of, uh, uh, like a wide variety of experiences. One of the ones that he recounted so beautifully was when he was invited to dinner at Oliver Messel's house and he was just told it was just going to be an intimate dinner. He turned up at the street and the whole of the road had been blocked um, and there was police waiting at either side. And so he was sort of, you know, imagine this in 1950 being a black man in yeah. London and um, he turned up at the house and um was told that princess margaret was coming to dinner to his house to 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 where he's going oliver's house so, oh, yeah, wow. he had dinner, he, yeah he had dinner with princess margaret and he said to me um uh she's very nice but she had no bum <laughs> <laughs> well some people see that as a good thing others see it as a bad thing i mean he obviously saw it as a bad thing uh, yeah, <laughs> I think I read somewhere that he said to I can't remember which actress it was but um, he was working with them in theatre and he just said to her if I told you the story of my life you wouldn't believe it so yeah. it, he obviously had loads of experiences like that and walking around his flat it was just the walls were jammed packed with photographs and memories and yeah program notes and uh, all sorts of things amazing who's that barking in the background have you got ryan I'm there the door. <laughs> i've been experiencing quite a lot of barking recently have you have, have yeah. your new neighbors got uh a, got a dog it seems that way yeah right so that's tommy <laughs> <laughs> Tommy Baptiste. 
love it. Do you know what? Um, what was the character he played in Coronation Street? It was there was some storyline to do with Len Fairclough or, or something, and he was a bus yeah, driver. Len was Len accused him of being. Len was accused of making a racist comment or something to this bus driver. Right. Okay. Wow. I, I don't even remember what the outcome was. In those days, it could have been anything. <laughs> I mean, it was a very long time ago. <laughs> yeah, I think, I think I might have been a three when that happened. Yeah. <laughs> or I wish. So what else have you done this week, Tommy? Um, well, I have been at picnicking. Mm. And we're going to have a picnic tomorrow, aren't we? Hopefully, yeah. Um, what what should we Some kind. what should we bring on the picnic? Wine. <laughs> I've got plenty of wine, and I've got hummus, and I've made. Um, maybe I could make another sourdough loaf. All right. Okay. Maybe we could record like a um, a picnic snack out of it. I'll see what I can delve delve into my snack out of it box. I'm just I'm just finishing off the Rivita thins. <laughs> Are you? Do you like a Rivita thin? I do actually. I'm really like addicted to them. <laughs> They're quite Moorish. What What's your favourite topping for a Rivita thin? Hummus. Uh, now, are you a Marmite lover or not a Marmite lover? Um, I love Marmite, and I like Marmite with peanut butter. You know, because they've just mixed it up. Yeah, that's delicious. That's a real taste sensation. Marmite and cottage cheese. I'm not sure about that. Have you ever but tried I'm- it? No, but I, cottage cheese is one of my staples. Yeah, I love I love a bit of cottage cheese. So I've uh, always got cottage cheese in because it's very high in protein and low in fat. Yeah, um, but it goes very well with Marmite, especially on a Rivita thin, I would imagine. Yes, it does. Yeah, that's the old school style of serving suggestion is a proper Rivita, cottage cheese, and maybe a cucumber over the top. Yeah, exactly. Hello, Mr. Neil Bartlett. Hello. Welcome to the uh, what that Hi old there. queen. Hello. Uh, oh, you've got loads of pictures behind you on a on a on a noteboard. Yes, I'm in my study, and um, that's uh, the wall of my study. My study is lined with um, that help me think or souvenirs from my shady past. Ah, okay. <laughs> it's you're not trying to solve a murder or something. No. Oh, okay. <laughs> have you got a drink now have i what have you got a drink i have thank you darling yes great cheers cheers, cheers. <laughs> so so tommy would you like to introduce mr neil bartlett i'd love to introduce so we're delighted to have neil bartlett with us today neil vivian bartlett that's me how are you neil i i think we can safely say I'm well, actually. I mean, like everyone else, I'm on fairly regular, but um, I'm lucky enough to live on the sea, and I've just come out of it. So at the moment, I'm glowing in. I would say. Where do Where do you live, Neil? Is it Is it Brighton? Uh, no, I live in Worthing, which is just along the coast. Yeah. From Brighton, go down to Brighton and turn right. Yeah, and I live. I live right, my husband and I live right on the seafront. We're by the pier. Oh, lovely. Oh, lovely. Yeah, which is fabulous. Here we are. No, I'm, yes, no, I'm having a good day. I I got some work done and my 
other half's downstairs cooking my dinner and the sun is shining and I haven't listened to the news today and that really helps because yesterday I just spent almost all of my energy in shouting at the radio and it, it's, it doesn't help. No, it doesn't it do doesn't anyone any good, help. does it? I mean, one needs, it, one needs to be informed but one needs not to be in a state of exacerbated despair from the minute you've had your first cup tea and that's what happened to me yesterday yeah <laughs> unsurprisingly oh, a very troubling times for us here and all over the world obviously but yeah particularly here with our particular government at the moment well let's talk about because you live in worthing and i started reading your book the dis the disappearance boy which oh, is yeah. which is kind of set there and you've got such an interesting way of telling a story um what did i write down? I, I, you, your seductively visual narration you reveal the secrets of a scene piece by piece a bit like a burlesque performer revealing their flesh <laughs> <laughs> but it's I, it's couldn't, I couldn't possibly comment <laughs> i mean that of course that way of writing Maybe that's true all the time, but it's particularly true of that book yeah. because that book is set in a writer in the 1950s and the lead characters are all people who are involved in an illusion act. So the revealing of secrets and visual trickery is very much what the book is about. But it's true. I am... Um, I know how to be a tease when I'm telling a story. It's quite flirtatious with the reader, isn't it? And a lot of the work yeah. that you, a lot of the work that you that you have been involved in, or the stories that you tell, are queer stories. But then some of the stories are kind of, or some of the plays that you've directed, um, just feel very standard. You know, your classics, the Shakespeare stuff, and I wondered about. Do you make a conscious effort to pull out queer narratives within classics? Uh, oh, diving in the deep end. Um, pulling out queer narratives when I do the classics. Well, I only ever do classics, as you call them, if I feel... I only do anything if I feel a re real personal connection with it. And so that connection necessarily is a queer one so when I'm directing Romeo and Juliet I incredibly identify with that story of being an incarcerated sexually frustrated teenager it never occurs to me to go oh this plays really about a cisgendered heterosexual girl so it's not really my story I, I feel it is my story lots of the so-called classics but only by Tchaikovsky in Britain um, and I've I've done, you know, Somerset Morn, Robin Morn, Oscar Wilde, a lot of important mainstream gay writers. I, I'm not sure I ever think consciously about pulling out a queer narrative because I never do anything else. I've... Uh, because I've never tried to clean up my act, I've never, I've never pretended to be straight in my work. So I think my, I'm trying to think of a piece of work of mine in 
the theatre where you could watch it and think, oh, I bet the person who did that was a heterosexual. I mean, <laughs> I, just, I just don't think that ever happened. But alternatively, do you um, think that, that people could see that this was directed by someone that was queer? I mean, we can never really answer that question. You'd have to interview every person who's ever yeah. seen a piece of my work, and that would take a long time. I think I think my honest answer would be I hope so. I mean, yeah. I certainly would hope that every queer person who was watching my work would go, oh, great, I can see that this work is coming from our world in some sense. I mean, sometimes incredibly obviously. I mean, some of my work is screamingly mm. queer. I guess that's I guess why I was I trying to I'm ask that question, really, is because, you know, you, like, growing up and visiting theatres and seeing stories played out there, being a young queer person, you would want to see something that you identify with, and maybe that doesn't necessarily have to be you watching you know, gay relationships played out, but... No. Yeah. I mean, one of the first... I was lucky enough to grow up in a town where there was a theatre and uh, also a theatre that had a really great ticket policy where there were really cheap seats at the back. of The sort of back row of the theatre was... The tickets were sold on the day and they were really cheap, so my mum and dad took us to see everything when I was a kid. And one of the first shows... The first two shows I ever saw were I saw a panto, which I loved, Robinson Crusoe starring Martin Jarvis, Pete, no, Peter Purvis, <laughs> confusing my hero in... I remember Peter Purvis. Oh, God, he was sexy. Yeah. He was so sexy. That was so wonderful. And then the other show that I saw in the same year was Anthony and Cleopatra. And starring a very great actress called Anna Calder-Marshall and watching the lights fade away on her body after she had died is something I will never forget. And I, on paper, neither of those things are queer theatre. Anthony Cleopatra, it has one clearly queer character and it has a few transsexual or gender ambiguous characters but you wouldn't say it was a thumpingly queer narrative and you weren't, certainly wouldn't say Robin whatever it was, Dick Whittington was a particularly queer narrative but they were when I was watching them you know, mm. little little seven or eight year old Neil had queer eyes mm. stories have two ends, they have the storyteller's end and they have the audience's end and we know as queer people we're capable of queering anything when you <laughs> listen to it but i certainly i i i have been known to front load the queerness in my work on occasion whether that's when i'm being posh and working in the nationality or if i'm slumming and doing a quick spot down at the Vauxhall Tavern. <laughs> um, the last show that you directed was The Importance of Being Earnest. Did that actually fully run, or were you stopped by um, COVID? We were stopped by COVID, but we did do we did four performances, and that was um, 
a show that I did at RADA, the Royal Academy of Dramatic Art in London, with third-year students. Um, had a fantastic time, had a fantastic company of young people. And it's a play that I know inside out and upside down. And it's a play that was written, I'm just going to show you this magic of communications. That's something off my wall. This is an old postcard of Worthing. This is 10 minutes away from where I'm speaking. And that room there is where Oscar Wilde wrote The Importance of Being Earnest. Oh, wow. And Mr. Wilde and I have formed, going back years, I, my very first book was about him back in the dark ages of the early 14th century. Um, and it's very weird that I've ended up living somewhere right in the middle of his world, um, out of that window, which you can't see, which is my study window, I can see the back of the house where a 16-year-old boy called Alphonse Conway lived, and he was Oscar Wilde's boyfriend in August 1894, which was when he was writing the importance in that house. Anyway, I've known that play for years, and I've always said I, I would direct it when I got old. And uh, early last year, my husband said to me tactfully, darling, you are, so you'd better do it. So I thought, all right, I'd better do it. And I, couldn't be, I can't be asked to go and do it in a big theatre, instead of which I decided to go and do it with a bunch of people whose basic attitude was, uh, who's Oscar Wilde? Who's that? We've, we've, we've sort of heard of him, but we, we've never read any of his plays, and we don't know who he is, and we wow. don't know... Why, why is it funny or how is it funny? So we had to start really from the ground, work from the ground upwards on discovering that play. And I had an absolutely fantastic time with this bunch of young people. And we made the play very weird and wonderful and funny. I was really proud of the show. And I was very sorry for them when we were going into work for the, we opened on Thursday, so we'd done Thursday, Saturday, and then as we came into work on the Monday evening, the head of RADA took us to one side and said, listen, I'm really sorry, this has to be the last one. Oh, God. So I said, okay, it has to be the last one, give them hell. There are a few pictures and that's it, and a lot have memories what a play great glorious play so yeah i had a great time that was the last piece of work that i did and god knows when any of us will ever work again my dears i mean who knows yes but, well uh, we're good at being poor we're good at being insecure and we've been through worse catastrophes than this so you know that's why Tom. My mantra is ICHs. You know, stay calm. Stay and a lot calm. of people are drawing parallels to the AIDS pandemic. Yeah. Like, is do yeah. you that? I don't. For me, the differences are clearer than the parallels. So, right from the beginning of this pandemic, everyone agreed that no one should die of this disease we should do everything possible to stop people dying of this disease. 
whereas the most significant point thing about the AIDS epidemic as it happened in this country, from my experience, was the majority of the population of this country thought people should die of this disease because it was their fault and that any money spent on stopping them dying of the disease was only a waste of money but mm. was sort of immoral. People were glad that gay men were dying because they had it coming. Well, no one has said that. I think there's an unspoken, an awful unspoken elephant in the room behind government policy, which is not very many people are dying, not enough people are dying to influence the outcome of an election. I know it sounds like a huge number of people, but actually it's really not in terms of how many people die in this country every day. And also, it's not a significant proportion of, it's not excuse, it's it's killing a lot of weak and vulnerable people, elderly people and BAME people, and so we don't really need to worry. If it was only killing bankers, they would have a vaccine. Um, <laughs> yeah. I can't believe it. Where's the audience coming from? <laughs> <I'm thinking. laughs> but, you're, but for sure, you're right. So I, I, I see more differences than similarities, interestingly enough. Yeah. There was, you would, you would think in the AIDS pandemic, no one ever said we're all in this together. No one ever stood on the streets and clapped in support of health workers during the AIDS pandemic. In fact, the opposite. People, yeah. people hate flourished. Division yeah. flourished at there, that time. There was so much stigma, wasn't yeah, there? Yeah. I do, there's no stigma in COVID. You don't get COVID because you're a bad person. Whereas everybody who got AIDS got AIDS because they were a bad person or a stupid person or a disgusting person. I think that's really an interesting point to just remember when when those similarities are kind of talked about. Um, yeah, Neil, you did an uh, adaptation of the novel Plague. Was that's that right into uh, 2017? And you're going to do yes. a radio play of that? Is that correct? That is correct. In fact, I've just finished recording it. So the the famous novel, The Plague, by Albert Camus, 1947, which he wrote just after he'd been working in the French Resistance. It's a great book. And I did a stage adaptation in London, the Arcola Theatre, where I loved working in 2017, and it really worked. And we did a second run of it in 2018. And I just finished last week recording, we haven't edited it yet, a radio version of that adaptation, which is a lockdown recording. So right. there are five actors in the piece. They were all on stage simultaneously for the whole piece in the stage version. But in the radio version, we recorded them all separately. So I've spent three weeks on Zoom talking to people wrapped in duvets. That's quite in, poignant, though, for for uh, uh, the current pandemic. Yeah, I know when it goes out, it's it's scheduled for broadcast on Radio 4 on 
in July sometime. I can't remember the date. And I know when it goes out, people are going to say, oh, well, of course, they're doing a version of the plague because, you know, we're in the middle of the plague. But actually, this script is from nearly four years ago now that I wrote it. Mm. But it does have the weirdest resonances for now. I mean, everything, everything that we're going through, bigger pictures like the whole process of denial and you to admit there's a problem until the very last minute, which we've even tiny details so where two people are in a hospital corridor and one of them has to run to get to an urgent meeting and the other one shouts to him, hey, you, you're not wearing your mask. And then after they've gone, the guy turns to the listener and says, I know they don't really make any difference, but they do help people feel more confident. And you go, wow, that was that was written in 1947 by somebody who had no idea, of course had no idea. But it, it is going to ring all sorts of bells. Yeah, I wonder um, if, it, if it rang bells with the, the Spanish flu pandemic back then. You know, because that was only like 20 years before, wasn't it, or something? Yeah, it was It was 25 years before. I mean, I think Camus was, he always said about the novel, when I'm not really writing about a plague, he was using the plague as the kind of landscape for how do you, particularly on the moral level, how do you survive catastrophe? He said, when catastrophe strikes, some people fight back. And some people just use it as an excuse to uh, make money, essentially, or augment their personal power. And he presents the plague as a moral choice. He says, so if people around you are dying, what do you do about it? Some people say, oh, well, there's nothing I can do about it. Some people say, oh, well, it's probably God's fault. He wants us to suffer. Some people say, actually, let's organize a volunteer community task force and see if we can minimize the damage to our fellow human beings. And he says, everyone has a choice how you respond in those times he ends the novel incredibly and this was why i did work actually he ends the novel by saying what you will discover when you live through a play is there are more things to admire about your fellow human beings than there are to despise mm. and i thought I think that's an incredible thing to say. Uh, I'm not sure it's true, but I think we need to challenge ourselves. I feel like I've noticed like a, le a less kind of jealousy, FOMO happening around like social media, particularly. It feels right. like, yeah, there's more sort of kindness I've noticed, I feel. That's Let's just hope that all of those lessons that we're kind of learning during this period don't just disappear once things get relatively back to normal. I think the problem is, yeah, totally I agree with you. I think the problem is that people are phrasing it in terms of kindness and heroism and those individual human qualities. This thing, people are kind. People are heroic people are generous that's how people are the things i want us to really remember is what about wage levels for care workers you know yeah. never mind care workers are wonderful and we should all stand on our doorsteps and clap them the real test is going to be the next time there is discussion in the houses of parliament 
of wage levels for junior members of the NHS. Are we going to be told once again, oh, no, we really can't afford that? And I think the government is already setting the groundwork for station to say, although we really love them and we really admire them and we really respect what they did for us during the pandemic, we're not going to give them an effing pay rise. That's going to be the test. Is this actually going to change the way people think about bus drivers, cleaners, social services? Uh, delivery drivers. These are the people who've been treated like shit for the last 25 years. That's the biggest question that I think is going to come out of the last six months. It's exactly the people who've been on the receiving end of everything that's gone wrong with our, with this country, who it turns out are the heroes in inverted commas of this pandemic. So yeah, to each other, but I really hope we're going to vote a pay rise to the women who my father, visual aid number two, that's my dad, Trevor, <laughs> who's 92. Wow. And he, he lives in a care home just down the road at the back of Bognor Regis, and they've had the virus in his care home, and nobody died, and the infection didn't spread. I really want those women to get a pay round. Yeah. Next time there's a pay round, I just want us to go, oh, aren't they marvellous? I really want our respect to be expressed in a way that the public conversation around low-paid people in this country changes. Stop treating people like shit. Yes. It's not fucking rocket science, Boris, <laughs> if you're listening. I'm sure, don't you think, Tom, there definitely this, there is, there's got to be a focus group at number 10 that says we need to listen to more queer podcasts and then we're really <laughs> going to know what's going on <laughs> I think they should. Welcome. Do you know what? I'm going to send, I'm going to email a copy to uh, Boris uh, when this goes out. (laughs) We keep seeing flashes of your pearls, and I always think of you wearing pearls. You're wearing lovely ones. Have you got, uh, is that a large collection or or are they all on one? No, it's a large collection, and there are a few more because I promised you I would dress up because what? One of the things about living in lockdown, and I'm I'm high risk or whatever it is, so I'm I barely go out. I'm in the house all the time, and I've I'm just either naked or in a dressing gown the whole of my <laughs> life. So I thought I will dress up for Tom, and this is a vintage uh, shirt from just before I met James, my husband. So that's 31 years ago. So I've had this shirt for 32 33 years this is vintage it's beautiful this is part of my poem this is what you get if you marry an antique dealer you get <laughs> you get pearl um they've all been found in boxes of costume jewelry in junk shops or boot fairs um these ones came off a death job these ones were given to me by a very dear friend of mine who I won't name and they belong to her mother 
and they were given to her mother by the Prince of Wales, the then Prince of Wales. Wow. So these are royal pearls that now are once again royal pearls. There you go. Can you spin them round? I can't, darling. <laughs> I've been doing in lockdown. I've learned how to spin pearl necklaces around my neck. But I would, I wouldn't do that with these. I would. No. I do have. I have another jewellery collection entirely, which is my drag and performance jewellery. And those, yeah, you mean doing the old, yeah, yeah. yeah, definitely, definitely. That's a good thing. I'm doing it, you just can't stop. (laughs) Hula hoop pearls. (laughs) Lockdown has not been in vain. It's all been worth it. Neil, please stay with us. We're going to have a little break and then we're going to come back with uh, Queens of Agony section if if you'll carry on joining. I'll carry on joining. Okay. Okay. Stay in your well, throne. You're you're welcome to the old queen pantheon. Uh, we'll have a little break, and we'll be back after this. Right, so we're back, and uh, we are with uh, the fantastic Neil Bartlett, and we're going to do some Queens of Agony. So, dear old queens, my 41-year-old boyfriend, oh no, he's 41, his boyfriend is 32, Yeah, is all about personality over physical then why can't I believe him when he says he's not into me sexually? Sex has always been a struggle for us. We have it fairly often, but he often seems uninterested and a tiny bit frustrated. Let's little things bother him during sex. Too many covers, not enough covers, too hot. (laughs) The list goes on. (laughs) Most of the time he doesn't come, but seems fine with it. Our relationship is great otherwise, and he is always willing to get me off. I have self-worth issues surrounding my weight. I'm not sexually attracted to guys my size, so that doesn't make loving myself any easier. I see these issues he is having as a sign he isn't sexually attracted to me. I have asked him, and while he says he is sexually attracted to me, none of his previous partners have been this overweight and we like similar types, average build. Having said that, he is very much a personality over physical. What's wrong with me that I can't accept his answer, and that the issues we are having in the bedroom are caused by other factors and not my weight? I have so many good qualities and make a good partner. Am I wrong to think all of this? Well, wow. Oh, dear. That's, that's a very long letter for you, Tommy. Yeah, I feel like there's lo- there's two different issues. Like there's the there's the kind of body image. Well, there's just the fact that they've been in they've been in a relationship for a while. Yeah, mm. does it say how long that they've been in? Uh, you get a kind of sense that they're too, they've been together for a while. Yeah, I think they've been together for a while. And I would say that that feels like more maybe the issue is around like there, there's there's just realistically not going to be that 
like jumping on their bones kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And I think it's really possible to find someone attractive that isn't your usual type, whatever that might mean. Um, so I don't think he's lying when he might say, I do find you attractive. Mm. Uh, but previously I've never like been with someone that would be carrying more weight, for example. I just feel like, I feel like it's to do with maybe something else that's going on in the relationship, like a companionship over the, the physical. Yeah. How about you, Neil? What, what do you feel? What do I feel? I feel like, let's be frank, the whole size thing, look into your beloved's eyes and believe him mm. because shape has nothing to sexy. I say this not as an abstract principle, but because I'm 61 and I've been having an outrageous sex life since I was 13. I've had everything and I can tell you that hotness is nothing to do with shape. Hotness is to do with life and it's to do with the spark between two people. So anyone who talks about type, oh, you're my type, you're not my type, they're talking out their arse, forgive the metaphor. <laughs> so get over it. You you are gorgeous. And if your boyfriend's saying, yeah, I do fancy you, uh, he is telling the truth. The other thing I would say, I mean, it's a really complex problem and we can't give you an answer. But the other thing I would say, as someone who's in the most glorious relationship which has now been going on for 31 years is that sex changes and people have this idea that there's a well-established sex narrative that every relationship starts in one place goes to this place then it goes to that place and then it goes to that place and then you die well that that isn't true the body is a journey and a relationship is a journey. And that's true if you're shagging someone for 15 minutes or if you're sharing a bed with them, as I've done with James for 31 years. It's a journey. It changes. Expect it to change. Work on it changing. And accept it changing. And don't don't let anyone else tell you how it should be and don't let voices in your head tell you how it should be. All those, one of the chief joys of being queer is that there is no roadmap. Yes. We have to write our own manuals and that includes the manual on how to maintain a physical relationship. Full stop. Even if that's how to maintain a physical relationship from the first date to the second date, or how to maintain a physical relationship over 31 years. It's There's no manual. No. Not even mum can tell you, although she probably could tell you one or two useful things. <laughs> I lost my mum 25 years ago. Uh, she gave me great advice of emotions. I wish I, I wish I had the chance now to say to her, Ear, how, how do you deal with the, my husband's 72 we she, would, do you think you know what she would say to you? Can you imagine? I know exactly what she'd say. She would say, yeah, and isn't he gorgeous? <laughs> <laughs> that, that's really probably what my mum would say as well. 
uh, he's a looker and he always will be and she loved him and he picked my dad who's been a handsome man all his life so she knew about yeah she knew about the value of good looks Mm. but uh, we were all of us brought up in a culture with so you know fat queen old queen stupid queen all those words go together really well and it is our life's work to uncouple them and to replace them with hot queen gorgeous queen brilliant queen unexpected queen brave queen unexpected queen yes unexpected we are all unexpected (laughs) darling no one imagined us (laughs) exactly i mean one of the reasons why this podcast is called what that old queen is because that's how someone described me once and i wanted to own it and turn it into a positive and be positive about being older and being gay uh and that's what this this podcast is all about really um i think you guys have answered that question i i i agree with both of your answers anyway moving on dear old queens Just wondering what your thoughts are on this. I'm in a relationship of four years. We're happy and have a great sex life. Definitely different sex drives, but we make it work just fine. I obviously have a higher drive. He has no problem with this and is awesome about it. I've jerked off with him in the room. He understands. I browse porn often on Twitter, Instagram, etc., and have found a few posters that I'm really attracted to. Two have OnlyFans accounts, and I recently subscribed to their content, which I look at fairly often. It's honestly great on the days I want some action and my boyfriend isn't there or in the mood. They're £5 a month individually. They're very small posters with about 50 to 100 followers, both very similar in build and aesthetic of my boyfriend. I have never cheated in a relationship and never planned to. I recently read that some people consider subscribing to an OnlyFans site cheating. I've never had any communication with these two guys, only liking their photos and nudes. I justify it in my mind, but would hate for this to affect my relationship. My boyfriend doesn't know about these subscriptions, and I'm not really sure what his opinion would be. Obviously, relationship over some random pics on the internet i would never want to make him feel insecure or less than what he is because that isn't the case at all i'm kind of battling with my thoughts part of me thinks it's wrong and i want to just unfollow and stick to generic porn that isn't centric around a certain person but the other half is attracted to this certain body type and here's a specific place i can get it when i want to go solo I plan to talk to my boyfriend about it soon, but figured I'd ask what the old queens thought. So, when you were saying posters, I think like posters, I thought you meant like posters, like <laughs> Athena posters that you put on your wall. It's an odd language, isn't it? Um, but I think he means the people that are posting their Post- pictures up. up <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, this guy, uh, I mean, he's guessing his boyfriend doesn't have a problem with porn, but he thinks. That he might have a problem because he's subscribing to an individual's only fan site. What do you think about that? I think you just need to ask him, do you have a problem with that? And like, is, do you think it's okay? Yeah, just say, look at this guy. Isn't he hot? Yeah, get off with yeah. him together. 
<laughs> Maybe. Yeah. I don't know. Um, uh, it's interesting. Well, I don't really see the difference of of poor. I mean, if you're not, if it's an OnlyFans site, it's still someone who's pretty anonymous to me. It's you know you're you're paying yeah, to see it. Worried, he's worried. He's falling in, into the because that porn star is smiling at me. Then actually, he really likes me. He's having a relationship. Mm. He is having a relationship with those porn stars. Right. But that that transaction happens whenever pornography is involved, and so long as you're self-aware about it, no problem. It could happen with anything. It could happen with works of art. It could happen with film. You know, whatever thing. Books, even. I've fallen in love with yeah. characters in a book. I spend way more time with Maria Callas within than with my husband. In my <laughs> but it's just part of life, isn't it? You're, the, the, your relationship isn't the be-all. I mean, relationship shouldn't just be the be-all and end-all of your life. You should have all these other interests. And whether that's an OnlyFans site or Maria Callas or a book, then I think that's only healthy, isn't it? I, I don't know. I, I can't see that this would be an it's issue for me. Healthy. I'm not sure. I mean, of course, we all need our privacy. It's not healthy to be tying yourself into some having guilt over some bit of fluff on a porn site. Yeah. Share it with your boyfriend. Say, oh, look, look at this one. This one's just popped up on my phone, darling. What do you think about him? It's no different from James and I were just out walking the dog just before I came upstairs. And there's a gorgeous guy sitting over the road with his girlfriend in a pair of shorts, cropped moustache, tattoos, legs, the works. And James says to me, oh, look at that one. And I say, oh, yes, lovely. Fine. <laughs> Great, yeah. It's the same thing. Share it with your boyfriend. Stop tying yourself up in nuts, darling. Have a lovely evening. <laughs> How about you, Tommy? Do you agree with that? Yeah, I agree with that. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, I've got two more questions. They're, they're, these ones are shorter ones. Can I add something to the last one? Remember that porn is boring. Porn is boring. Okay. People are not boring, but porn is boring. It's very important we all remember that because too often people think porn is more interesting than people. And it's not true, darlings. Let's be clear. Okay, no. next question. Okay. Dear old queens, when did you stop caring about your appearance? Quite personal. Uh, I just oh. turned... <laughs> <laughs> I'm not going to say that on air. Do not see me. I'm wearing, actually, with my rings, I'm wearing nearly £15,000 worth of jewellery. So fuck right off. And this is mid 80s hot gear. I have fabulous tits and a really big dick. You don't know what you're talking about. Sorry, what's the rest of the question? <laughs> I don't know if I want to read the rest of the question. <laughs> I think your answer is amazing. Um, anyway, I just... Uh, I don't understand that. Was it directed, it? Was it directed at us? No, not at all. Oh. Uh, it was like a rhetorical oh. question. <laughs> so, I've just turned 40 earlier this year, and I definitely don't feel like the stereotypical 40-year-old. My routine to keep my youthfulness, moisturising, working out, eating healthy, etc. just seems so tedious at times. I do let loose once in a while and have an extra drink now and then or accidentally spend too much time in the sun or have a piece of cake. So I know how to enjoy life in those regards. At what point 
though, do others, 40 plus, stop giving a damn about their appearance? Sometimes I just feel at times that my disciplined routine is a bit much. However, it's done me well. So I like the attention I get, but now that as I continue to age, things will go downhill quickly regardless. So when did you stop caring and what has have been the results? I have not stopped caring. <laughs> have you guys? I, 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 I think it's deeply problematic, that letter. Mm. And like, I think, of course, you can have a piece of cake. Like, why would you even mention having a piece of cake and letting your, having a glass of wine? I think he has. Letting your hair down. It's not really like that's not what I call letting your hair down. No. no. He's got such a strict regime. I mean, I. I let my hair down in way more ways than that <laughs> how about you neil oh dear i don't know whether to be tired or cross or disappointed <laughs> i mean sister what is this guy talking about he sounds like a puritan yes. with real self-worth issues on the sexual front i mean what have ever happened to messy is sexy you mm. know that whole of I've got to be scrubbed and plucked and toned and then people will really like me and I enjoy the attention I get. No, I can't even begin to tell you what a turn off that is. You sound no, that's I don't want to be I don't want to be unpleasant, but that's such a bad attitude towards sex and towards pleasure. I think you really need to discover your own body and let other people discover it. And as for old queens giving up on how they look, my three of my best friends are 82 and 86 and 89, and they're all always gloriously well-dressed. Yes. Older queens. I, this whole idea that... No, where does that come from? I think who, the, the issue... This guy hanging out with lots of desperate old queens who hate... I think he's talking about himself. Totally. Like, I'm really worried. That this I'm thing about, like, it's obviously working... It, like, he said something like, it's and it's been working for me, it's been good to me, or something. It's like, well, you re you're reaching the point now when it's not going to work for you, and you need to have another strategy, and that strategy is about, like, like letting your hair down, not caring so much. Exactly. Like knowing, knowing what is sexy and what isn't, like... It's, it's about a whole rethink, really. I remember when I first came out, everybody, it was all about appearance and you should you, you should do this, you should do that, you need to look pretty, you need to be a twink. Whereas um, I think that whole kind of ethos has changed in recent years. And I have to say that I used to do all the preening and look after myself and all that kind of stuff up until like my mid-30s. And do you know what? I hardly had any action with guys. And it wasn't until I suddenly became 40 and I was just, I kind of gave up on trying to please everybody else on how I looked. And I just was myself. And I was pleasing myself on what I wore, how I looked, having a beard. And ever since I've kind of accepted myself for who I am, who and what I am, I mean, I know I don't have the perfect body, but, you know, so what? <laughs> you know, what is the perfect body? I have the perfect body for a lot of people. And I've had, I've, well, I've had way more sex since I've been 40 plus than I ever did between 20 and, and 40. Let's put it that way. I agree. I'm 61. I'm having the best sex in my life. So there you go. Oh. 
life does not end at 40 or 30 or whatever age you think it is. Doesn't, where, where is this coming from? Where is this coming from? Life doesn't end. Uh, life is the journey. Get better at it. Love yourself. Have more sex. Let your hair down. Jesus Christ, we need to get this guy over for the evening. <laughs> <laughs> we need to get him drunk and feed him cake. Um, okay, well, one more very quick last question. I'm to the bed and play in Maria Callas and say, now how do you feel? That would be my... <laughs> okay. All right, final question. Dear old queens, how are you going to navigate meeting guys now that we are coming out of lockdown? So it's going to be at least another year or so till they develop a vaccine for COVID-19. And I know that we're all not going to turn asexual before then. Are you going to be hooking up less or is it going to be business as usual? No hookups till it's safe. No ifs, no buts, no hookups till it's safe. It's no more complicated than that. And anyone says, oh, well, it's my life. I can do what I want with it. It ain't fucking true, Mary. What about your parents? What about your family? What about all the healthcare professionals you're expecting to pick up the pieces if you become infected? No hookups till it's safe. Can I say the answer is surely socially distanced jerking off in public spaces? <laughs> yeah. And clearly, into the new golden age. Of- <laughs> All of the shopping centres and outdoor parks will concur with that advice. I think so. Especially if you're in the queue for Tesco's. I mean, why not? You heard it here first. But head for your local outdoor cruising spot and find out just how much fun you can have at a two metres distance. And but let's let's create new ways of doing it. But the bottom line is no physical contact till it's safe. But so so say if you're single, you know, and you just have regulars with different types of people, like in Denmark, I think they're saying you're you're you you can have you should choose one partner and have a relation like regular hookups with them. Yeah, it's a bit difficult though. It's not the world's best chat up line, is it? Hello, I fancy you. Let's be each other's regular partner for the foreseeable future. No, that's not a very gay idea. That's not a very gay idea. Sorry, Denmark, for once you're not being helpful there. Nude I think we will, we have to apply our queer ingenuity to this, but let's all behave better than Dominic Cummings. That's all I can say. We all have a duty to behave better. And uh, we've done it before. With my generation, we learned how to have safe sex. And to coin the phrase, I'm still here. And so are all of my friends and lovers who survive. And we're still here because we made that huge commitment of saying, okay, let's not do it. And it's not a judgment thing. I'm not saying I'm going to really disapprove of you. If you're naughty, I know how difficult it is, but that should be our aspiration. No hookups till it's safe. Be better with our comings than comings. And on that note... Oh, it here, girls. <laughs> okay, on that note, I think we should end the show. Um, thank you so much, Neil, for being with us. Please. Please say goodbye to our audience. 
Uh, goodbye, everyone. <laughs> stay safe. Stay brave. And I'll see you on the other side. Lots of love. Good night. Great. Say goodbye, Tommy. Thank you. Thank you, Neil. Thank you, Neil. You're thank welcome. you. Thank you, Tommy, and thank you all for listening. Uh, we will see you next time on What That Old Queen. You have been listening to What That Old Queen, written and presented by Tom Marshman and Bernie Hodges. The show was produced by Bernie Hodges in lockdown 2020 for Hodge Podcasting. If you'd like to sponsor a show or you'd just like to be a guest or you have a question for the old queens, you can email on hello at thatoldqueen.com or find us on Facebook, Instagram or Twitter. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.